Hello and welcome to Monday Night Bible Study. I'm your host, Adam Schindler. I'm grateful that you all joined me this evening on Monday night, June 28th. It's 8 p.m. on the East Coast. And I guess it doesn't matter where anyone else lives because the East Coast is the best coast. So we, we do have friends joining us from all over the country. We've got people, if you've not been here with me before, um, we've got people on Zoom over to my left. They have joined by texting the word STUDY to 770-746-8388. If you want to get connected to me and the, the uh, it's a part-time evening, my personal ministry itch, scratching, teaching of the word and connecting with Jesus. If you want to get connected, you can text STUDY to 770-746-8388. You can get the Zoom link and other things from me personally there to your text messages. So... Again, thank you for joining me tonight. We are in a multi-part settings teaching series around the book of Genesis. I talked through the book of Exodus in about eight weeks, and now we're in Genesis working through uh, what's been going on at the origins, about the nature of the universe, the creation story, uh, how God designed humanity, a home story that we are a temple crafted in the image of God, and for the last couple of nights, we've been talking, last couple of sessions, we've been talking specifically about what happened at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and right and wrong. And so tonight, that is our topic again. So tonight, we are covering part two of something that I call death to right and wrong. Um, no, I'm not a moral relativist. I'll say that probably every time I say the name of this topic, um, but I started a book a few years ago uh, that I titled Death to Right and Wrong. Um, it's a self-published book. Actually, it's, it's not even published. It's a self-written book uh, that's not completed. Um, but it, it deals with a lot of these questions and a lot of these ideas that I've been teaching through in Genesis. So if you're interested at all in receiving a little bit of a sample of some of that and some of the recap um, language, I have about a 12-page intro PDF that covers some of these ideas. So if you're interested in receiving that, you can text DTRW, Death to Right and Wrong, DTRW to the number on the screen, um, uh, this one, 770, I went back. But if you want DTRW, you can get a PDF um, version of that for your own personal use, um, just to let you know about that. But tonight we are looking at something that I call the rebellion. Now, you guys would probably be more familiar with what this is if I called it the fall. So this is the fall, the moment. Um, and I guess I've never really understood why it was called the fall. Um, maybe I just haven't read the right New Testament passage that calls it the fall um, or the theological book that labels it as such. Um, but I haven't seen that. I don't see that word in the scripture, and it doesn't seem to me exactly to fit uh, what's really going on there. Um, it seems to me that the more this is more about a human rebellion from God's purposes and a demonic insurrection, um, which stimulated the human rebellion. So I use the term rebellion, and we're going to talk about that tonight. Um, what was the rebellion about, and how was it related to and connected to the demonic insurrection um, that had happened? So also to my friends on Facebook and YouTube, we got one chatter in YouTube. Hopefully 
YouTube is still working. It seems like it's kind of stuck a little bit down there in YouTube. But hi, Miriam, over on YouTube. And um, welcome, everyone, on Facebook. Sorry, I was checking to make sure that my streams were working well. Got friends from Illinois, friends from Georgia, Wilmington, North Carolina in Facebook. A lot of familiar faces. It's great to see you all. Uh, Ohio, PA, Florence, South Carolina, Colleen, Texas, Colorado. You guys are awesome. So, well, let's get into it here. I just want to recap then if you guys are joining for the first time, I want to give you a recap from two weeks ago of key terms. This is a recap of key terms. Um, and the first one that we need to understand is this term connection. And this is about being seen, heard, and valued. So when I use the word connection, I'm talking about being seen, heard, and valued, and that that is a mutual expression. Um, it's something that exists between two people. So when God connected to humanity, he, he saw us, he heard us, and he valued us, and that was reciprocal. We saw, heard, and valued God. Um, there's another word, da'af. This is knowledge. This is about perceptive skill or ability. This is about mental, cognitive, rational skill. This is where we mostly get, um, this is most of our understanding of the word no. Okay, and the tree of the da'af of good and evil. This is the tree of the knowledge, perceptual skill or ability. But there's another word that's translated as no, and this is the word yada, and it's to encounter. And yada, or knowing, is an intimate knowing by experience. And Adam knew his wife Eve, and they gave birth to Cain. That's yada. Then there's vulnerable. Vulnerable is uh, risking uncertainty and exposure and nakedness. And we're back to that topic tonight, um, nakedness, spiritual, spiritual nakedness, exposure, vulnerability, being, being made to be seen, okay? And vulnerability is not transparency. Those are two different things. Transparency says I can see you. Vulnerability says I see you and I can touch you. I can influence you, Okay, true vulnerability is transparency incarnate, where we can influence. It's like going to the zoo and looking at the lions playing in the lion's den. You know, the five-year-old is seeing a transparent experience of the lions, but Daniel was thrown into the lion's den and he was vulnerable. Okay, those are the differences there. And then lastly, this is how I use the word intimacy, that this all of these terms are built up so that we can reclaim and understand intimacy with God, because intimacy is a sustained experience of a vulnerable connection. Jesus in John 15 calls that abiding. Okay, that's the last couple of weeks of teaching in a nutshell recapped, but that's what I'm talking about with intimacy. So, and then that was two weeks ago, and then last week we talked about this moment in um uh, in the garden where the woman eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the serpent who is crafty and wily. Uh, she was tricked or seduced by the serpent. And I want to recap um, that as well because we need to understand that the issue is not necessarily that the serpent was Satan, though I think that it was. The issue is that the serpent was crafty. Okay, and he didn't necessarily lie, but he used knowledge and human reason. And I connected that to, to what I believe is a very, um, well, I think it's an apropos 
connection with what's going on in the culture and the world today, that these these spirits, the craftiness of the spirits, are still in operation today, leading us astray into other things. So this is a quick recap of the seduction that this crafty serpent said to Adam and Eve. Uh, Adam was with Eve when she ate and heard all these things. So this was the serpent's seduction. Okay, and this is what he said. Essentially, I'm paraphrasing the scriptures. Go back and read this or listen to it. Um, You can watch it on my website, adamshindler.com, or you can subscribe to my podcast on iTunes and Google Google Podcasts to hear this. But the serpent says to the woman and the man, he says, essentially, these are my paraphrases. God has an experience that he's intentionally withholding from you. Okay, I unpacked this all last week. And God is doing this. This is the serpent's lie, the seduction. God is doing this because he doesn't want you to be equal with him. Okay, which was the devil's problem in the beginning, that God set up a world that the devil didn't like because the serpent or Lucifer wanted to be worshipped and he was never going to be worshipped, right? God and Satan were not, have never been, will never be equal, okay? This battle in the heavens of a divine, like, cosmic right and wrong, good and evil, light and dark, two dueling forces fighting each other, that's called a metaphysical dualism, and that's not the Bible, okay? It's not the yin and the yang and the light and the dark. God and the devil are not equal, and they're not in combat, okay? The devil was never equal with God. and But this is what he tells Adam and Eve, that God doesn't want you to be equal with him. Okay, and because because God doesn't want you to be equal with him, you should break out from underneath his power hierarchy and gain for yourself his secret knowledge. Okay, God has a power hierarchy, the serpent says, that you'll never supplant unless you go and take it, unless you get it for yourself. And what's the it that you're supposed to go and get? Well, it's the knowledge, it's the da'oth, it's the rationality, okay? And it's secret knowledge that God's holding and withholding. And when you do this, this is only when you will actually be equal, okay? This is equality, right? It's the devil's equality act, (laughs) you know? This is how we get equality, you know? Let's just take all of God's stuff by getting our own stuff without God, Then the serpent says, essentially, you'll have equality with God. You'll be God yourself instead of his dependent. Okay, and I connected that to um, some spiritual stuff that's moving around in the world, in the earth. A recycled ancient spirit from the Garden of Eden has found its home in Maoist and Leninist and Stalinist and and, uh, Pol Pot and Mao Zedong and all of the philosophies and the the human government around Marxism and neo-Marxism now and, and, and communism and all of these uh, philosophical and political economic ideas and theories have connected to it this same spirit of the serpent in the garden, that the only way to actually be equal and to overthrow the divine hierarchy that God set up, that God is God and we are not, And the serpent has been raging against that from the beginning, from the garden and even before when he was in heaven. The serpent rages against that and tries to get the earth to rage against that. And all of the ideologies that are built up around equality are not 
defined by biblical equality. They're defined by satanic equality here in the garden. And that's a big statement, you know. Um, I can unpack it, and I'm going to do more of that, and I did some last week. But that's kind of where we are tonight, of what the serpent has said and how this seduction came into humanity. Okay? You got to get for yourself. Throw God off the hierarchy of power. Disrupt the dominant hierarchy. Don't reform it. Destroy it. Start your own. You be the God. You be the one in charge of right and wrong. You be the one that has the knowledge. God is not your friend. He's your enemy and your rival. That is the lie of the serpent that Adam and Eve bought. Okay? And these, just so we're clear, love the serpent. Okay? These are not God's words. All right? These are not God's plans. These are not my ideas. These are the, this is my paraphrase of what the serpent was doing. And if you spent any time studying critical race theory and some of the things that are moving in the earth, you're familiar with the structure of this. So, that being said, tonight we're going to continue on and we're going to look at what happens after they eat of the fruit. Um, uh, again, the scriptures don't say it was an apple. That's pop culture which is fine, it may have been an apple, uh, but the historical um, Jewish interpretation of that was that it was a pomegranate, which was, I like, you know, the Christians call it an apple, the Jews call it a pomegranate, but the pomegranate is supposed to have, and if you break it open, it grows in Israel, it grows in the Middle East, apples do not, so it's probably not an apple, but the pomegranate, if you break it open, it has 613 seeds, supposedly, and that 613 seeds was the, was the number that was given by a 15th century AD uh, Jewish sage called Rambam. I think it was, it was either Rambam or Rashi, I forget who did it. I think it was Mamanides, Rambam, who was the one that counted all of the, the written commands in Torah and came up with 613 commands in the scriptures. Uh, and so they connected that to the pomegranate, which the pomegranate, this is a total rabbit trail, but I'm going to stay on it till I'm done. Um, the, uh, the, the pomegranate, if you look in, in, um, in Israel, there is a, a bunch of old uh, artifacts of the pomegranates, and I believe that it's in Exodus. I'm pretty sure it's Exodus. I haven't fact-checked this because I'm on a rabbit trail. Um, but in Exodus, the Lord talks about the tassels that are in the bells that are put on the bottom of the, the high priest's garment when they go in on Yom Kippur. And they found these bells, and they're shaped like pomegranates. So they put little pomegranates at the bottom of the tassels, and the pomegranates are a big thing. Um, in the, the ancient Jewish world and first century Judaism as well, and modern Judaism. So I like that it was a pomegranate. So if you hear me say, and they ate the pomegranate and gave it to his husband that was with him, you'll know why. I've never actually had a pomegranate. Um, but so, okay, now I have to find my way back. All right. So what happens after they eat the pomegranate? This is what we see here in Genesis 7, all right? This is Genesis, no, sorry, Genesis 3, 7 and 8. Then, after they ate the pomegranate, then the eyes of both Adam and Eve were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And the man, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Then the man said, "Uh, Well, uh, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. All right, so I wanted to read that section first, and we're going to go back and unpack that because there's a lot there's a lot of fun stuff in there. Um, and um, there are I'm seeing pomegranate comments on Facebook, so I got I got distracted. I haven't eaten pomegranates, but I had palm juice. We used to get palm juice, and then like two or three years ago, they put out this pomegranate um, uh, advertisement for palm juice, and it was this really seductive, like, naked woman, like the curves of her body with the pomegranate juice bottle kind of along her hips, and it was like the bottle was supposed to be shaped like that, and they were totally playing on the pomegranate and the serpent and nakedness, and so I stopped drinking the pomegranate juice. Um, You know, if you can't bring it home from the supermarket without your wife thinking you're doing something weird, uh, you probably shouldn't be drinking the juice. So, anyway... uh, I hope tonight's not just a rabbit trail night. So, I want to unpack, I want to go back here through um, Genesis 3-7 and work through these these ideas here. We got three big kind of blocks that we have to unpack and look at some of these words because, I mean, as you probably know by now, I like to unpack words and there's hidden meanings, not hidden, but there's meanings here that we won't see if we just gloss over using our English language. So first we want to look at this Genesis 3-7, okay? And verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Okay, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves a loincloth. So we need to look at the context of this and remember that the, the seduction from the serpent was this that God has a yada, he has an experience, he has a thing that he is living in that you don't have, Adam and Eve, love the serpent. Um, God has something that you don't have, he has an experience. And God knows, this is what the serpent says, when you eat from the tree, you will have the same experience that God has. Okay, this was the temptation, you'll have the same experience that God has. All right, so I think that it's interesting now we get to discover whether or not this is true, okay? They ate from the pomegranate tree. They got juice running down their face. Maybe they got a few of the little black seeds, and they're like, oh, this is delicious. Or maybe they're like vomiting, I don't know. But they're eating this food, and I imagine it tasted good. But they're eating this, and then what happens is that they have their eyes, their eye in. And the eye is like, the word is means, essentially it means a fount 
or a fountain, a thing from which everything springs forth. You know, um, Leonardo da Vinci is supposed to have said that the eyes are the windows to the soul, that they're a look in to the soul, but the Hebrew scripture calls the eye the fountain, right? It's the thing that puts out. And so the eyes, the eyes, the fountains were open, okay? And then they yadad their nakedness. So, I, I don't know if, um, I don't know. I don't know if God is naked. Uh, this is kind of where my head is going, but that's uh, a weird question. But they were supposed to have the same experience that God had, right? And what's their first experience? Their eyes are open. The, f- the fountain opens up, and they actually get what the devil was talking about. And what is their first yada experience, encounter? It's not the same encounter that God had. It's not the promised paved, you know, it's not the promised payout. You know, God is not naked. Paula says he's clothed in glory, right? The good one. You know, he's clothed in glory. So they're having an experience of nakedness. Okay? They're discovering, they're yadaing their own nakedness. This is not what the serpent promised. This is not what he accused God of having. Okay? God does have a yada, an experience of knowing good and evil. But when Adam and Eve ate from the fruit, they experienced a yadaing of nakedness. Okay? An awareness of this. And I'm seeing some comments on Facebook, and you guys are tracking. I love it. Um, because this is where uh, we, we begin to get introduced to the idea of shame in the Scripture. Now, this... We're going to talk some about shame. This will be unscripted. So, shame doesn't show up in this passage, Genesis chapter 3. Okay? It's not here. I was taught that they all of a sudden were ashamed. Okay? Um, That word isn't here. But it's connected here because it's specifically mentioned in Genesis 2, Verses latter part of Genesis, when they said, and the scriptures say that they were naked and not ashamed. Okay, so the implication here is, of course, that now that they are aware of their nakedness, they are ashamed. Okay, and I think that that's, um, I think that that's enough for me to say this is probably an experience of shame. Okay, but I also want to talk about this word nakedness, and we'll get into that a little bit. Um, but let's go with the idea of shame. You know, that there is, there is such a thing as healthy shame. Um, I was taught this by my counselor, um, who I went to for a while, uh, because I've, you know, I'm, I'm so smart and I have so much going on in my head that I need professional help to untangle it all. Um, I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of, you know, licensed professional counselors that believe in God and follow um, his voice. Uh, my mom's one of them. But I wouldn't go to my mom for counseling. You know, that would just twist me up even worse. Um, love you, mom. But my counselor worked on PTSD. She's, she was one of the people that, that helped pioneer with a, with a woman out in Arizona um, all these new breakthroughs in the 80s and 90s around understanding the brain and post-traumatic stress disorder. And she taught this to me, and it was something that was very significant for me because I was taught in Scripture that, uh, that shame is bad, always. And it was, which 
which it is um, in large part. But, you know, I, I learned this. Guilt says I've done something bad. Shame says I am bad. Okay? And shame is not just about a transgression. You know, uh, our Western culture is more of a guilt-based society. You know, even now we're throwing off all of our guilty, you know, it's, we have guilty pleasures. But we're, the West in general is more of a guilt-based society, right? We can make people feel bad for doing the wrong things. And this Twitter mob pile-on cancel culture thing is about you've done something wrong. Okay, but they've gone another step now, and it's really attacking the core identity. It is a public shaming of people. They've gone from you've spoken wrong to you are wrong. Let's cancel you as a human. Okay, and Eastern cultures, I've got a lot of friends over in, in, in Asia and China and Singapore and Indonesia, and um, that's more of a shame-based culture, like bringing dishonor to the family, is the worst possible thing you could do. Uh, if you've watched the Disney spectacular Mulan, you know, bringing shame to the family, dishonor to the family. I have children, so I don't watch those things on my own, like date night with my wife, Disney movies. I just got to watch them with my kids so I can correct all the bad stuff in it. Um, but it is a shame-based society. Now, the idea, though, of shame is that that there's something that you're, it's not just something that you're doing, but it's also the connection between what you're doing and who you are, right? And so there is an element that, just use this example because, you know, this is an adult Bible study, not like a Vegas adult Bible study, but like, uh, um, if you run around naked in public, you should be ashamed of yourself. Right? There should be a measure of shame that enters into your mind of an awareness of the reality of what your public display is doing to everybody else around you. That your behavior and the choices that you're making um, are something that culture is saying you probably shouldn't be doing that. Um, now, I'm, you know, Victorian era conservative, you know, whatever. Protestant prude that thinks public nakedness, you should be ashamed of it. But I do, you know, um, especially around my children. And I think that, you know, naked people in public around my kids is not something I think is good. I think they should be aware of the shame. Okay. Now, shame sometimes helps us be aware that something is off, not just in our behavior, but something in our character. Okay, and the idea here is that we don't all have impeccable character. Okay, and shame in a healthy sense can sometimes alert us post the rebellion, post fall world that there's something going on inside of us that needs correction. Okay, and it's not something that we need to spend our lives living in. There's no such thing as healthy shame that you live your life ashamed, and it's healthy to live your life ashamed. Healthy shame is an awareness that something emotionally is triggering you, and you're aware that there's a character flaw that needs to be addressed, brought to the Father, gotten help, and dealt with. Okay, 
That is like pain, you know, pain. God didn't make us to live in pain or sickness, but pain helps us identify the problem so that we can seek the healer in the same capacity that there is some shame that helps us understand a character flaw, not just a behavioral problem. Does that make sense? So the thing for me then, you know, uh, and I'm not a professional counselor and my counselor did like two hour lecture on this topic. So I'm going to, you know, introduce a big idea and, leave it incomplete for you. But the other, the other side of that was really what I was experiencing so much in my life was something that she called toxic shame or carried shame. Okay. And this shows up a lot. Toxic shame and carried shame um, shows up a lot in victims of sexual abuse or assault. Uh, people that um, carry the shame of their abuser. And think about this for a moment. The, the shame of an adult who ought to know better than to prey on assault and manipulate a child who doesn't understand the complexities of all the things that go on um, around sexuality. The adult manipulates that child or the underage person, uses it to their advantage. And the adult should have shame but they don't. So what are they doing with their shame? They're putting that shame upon the child. And the child oftentimes, or the victim of abuse, um, feels the shame. They're carrying the shame from the abuser, the one that should have the shame that would present, prevent them from doing these sorts of things. It now gets transmitted onto the child, and the child thinks that it's me. I've done something wrong. But the victim has not done anything wrong. They're the victim of abuse, and the worst kind of abuse, sexual abuse, that puts all of this stuff on you. So coming out from underneath carried or toxic shame is about placing the appropriate measures of shame where they belong. Look, it's not me. Yes, a horrible thing was done, but it wasn't my fault. I'm going to take this shame and I'm going to give it back to the person. This is their shame. I'm going to return this you know, and let go of it. And I received an incredible amount of healing when I, when I understood some of these ideas um, surrounding toxic and carried shame. And so Adam and Eve, I think in one capacity, they now are heaped upon them the shame that the serpent had been carrying and he wanted to spread as of an abuser to a helpless innocent victim. And there's deep parallels to the idea of a sexual abuser with the serpent and the innocence of Eve, okay, and the naivete that we talked about a few weeks ago. So I do see this. There's, there's some interesting correlations now that what happens when we live in a world where we're carrying other people's shame? When we encounter someone like a serpent, someone that's a room, right, that's crafty, that uses knowledge as a weapon, that tricks and manipulates, what happens when somebody, we encounter somebody like that? And we're, we're naive. In some senses, that's healthy. In some senses, it's not. But we don't have the same experience. What happens when a politician begins to speak and promise and it's snake oil salesman and it's manipulative, but it seems really nice and pretty? All of a sudden now you're, you're, you're getting the things that they're doing, the actions, consequences, the shame that they don't have, you begin to feel on yourself. Okay, and you think, well, maybe I really am racist. Maybe, maybe, I, maybe I really am that. Maybe I have to feel bad about being a white man. 
And that doesn't mean that I can't address and look at points of privilege and understand, you know, the, the little adage I think is kind of funny, you know, is that, you know, the white man is born on third base and thinks he hit a triple, you know, and there's a reality to individual um, opportunities that come based on particular traits that you didn't create for yourself, right? We don't create our own gender. We don't create our own skin color, our own, you know, we, we don't get to choose where we're born. There's immutable characteristics and circumstances in life. But when someone tries to heap their own sense of shame onto us for the way that God made us, this is getting us into a very quick place of toxic shame that we are being invited by the serpent to carry his shame and his rejection and rebellion of God, um, to pass that on to humanity. You know? And that's why the demonic insurrection incites a rebellion. Okay, Rebellion is rebelling against God's authority. Insurrection is trying to supplant his authority. The serpent was an insurrectionist who tried to take over God's throne. Adam and Eve rebelled, and humanity rebels against the authority and tries to do their life without God. The serpent's insurrection stirred up the rebellion in humanity, and we made that choice, right? So, at least that's the way I see it, you know? And these are, these are language and words, like, I'm talking like this, y'all, because I'm, I'm trying to work out as I'm talking and thinking through this, what is going on in culture, okay? Because there's all of these new definitions for things that seemed like we just knew what they were. And 10 years ago, we couldn't even fathom that we would need to have some of the world's most prominent intellectuals mount a public defense for freedom of speech in the earth. But now that's what's happened. We have to mount a vigorous public defense of the idea of freedom of speech. And 10 years ago, it was just taken for granted, you know? But it's unfathomable that America even got to a place where we valued and we, and we codified with law for hundreds of years the value of freedom of speech. It doesn't exist hardly anywhere else in the world, and it never existed in human history. The Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, Alexander the Great, you know, any of the shahs in Iran, um, the Persian Empire, you think you could just say whatever you wanted to Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus or Darius or, you know, the pharaohs? The whole idea of freedom of speech is a new thing based on the Judeo-Christian values that everyone is made in the image of God. And we have an inherent right and a value to speak, to have the words, the voice of God emanate from our lips. We have that opportunity, you know, but everything's shifting around right now, and I, I'm just wanting to try and as believers to understand that this is not new. The attack on freedom of speech is new in our life, but it's not new to God, and it's the same old, tired, worn-out spirit that has been defeated, and we will defeat it once more. Of that, I am confident. I'm just worried how many people are going to go down before it happens. How many institutions? So that was the rabbit trail, not in my notes on shame. All right. Okay, well, this will be a while. I'll speed up uh, or cut some stuff out. So they knew they had this encounter of their own nakedness, okay? And 
I want to talk about this word nakedness because this is just, it's, I don't know, I, I learned this this week. Um, and it was like, oh, really interesting. So this is the definition, this is the Hebrew word erom. And the Hebrew word, and it means naked or nakedness. Okay, and it's used, see if I have my notes. Um, there's enter notes, I'm going to turn those on over here. I made notes tonight on my slideshow. Uh, you don't care. I have no internal monologue, in case you guys were wondering. Um, so um, this word arom is used three times in Genesis chapter 3. It's used one time in Deuteronomy 28. We're going to look at that. And then it's used six times in Ezekiel. Okay, so I want to show you how this word arom is used. This is Deuteronomy 28, 46 through 48. I'm going to read this to you. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, 46. This is in the middle, one more thing. This is in the middle of the blessings and the curses, right? When God is speaking out, if you follow these things, these commandments, and they're on the Mount of Blessings in Nebo and Arbel, speaking out the blessings and the curses. This is in the middle of the curses section, okay? Deuteronomy 28, 46. They, these curses, shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. If you don't follow the covenant, don't stay in line with the Lord's word, the curses. Verse 47, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all the things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness, in lacking everything. He will put you a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Ezekiel uses this six times in the same context. Go read it. It's Ezekiel 16, um, 18 and 23, I think. If you have a blue letter Bible, go and do a little word study on this. It's, it's really interesting because it's all about, um, I mean, the ESV version uses the word whoring. Uh, you're whoring yourself out to these other gods. And it's, it's all about the sexualized metaphor of prostitution, giving your body away as giving your spirit away to something else, and that you lie exposed in nakedness, okay? You're empty, you're vulnerable, and it's not just vulnerable, it has this strong connotation of being in deep, deep darkness and rebellion and disconnection from God in all the places that it gets used, Okay? in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. So this was sort of the big aha moment for me when I saw this. I clicked on my Blue Letter Bible thing. I clicked on Erom, uh, and it has, when you do this, uh, I'm just trying to give you guys tools for how I do studies and how you can get more out of the Word than just reading English and trying to figure out, what does this mean? Um, well, it's confusing, right? But you can do kind of these word studies. So what I did is I clicked on Erom and then saw that it had a root word, okay? And this is the root word from which the word Erom emanates. Arum. Now the serpent was more Arum, more crafty than all the other creatures the Lord your God had made. So the, the experience that Adam and Eve have is not the one that God has, it's the one that the devil has. 
Think about this. Their first experience, they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the first thing that they discover is they have a yada of nakedness. And that nakedness is a play on words of having the same kind of crafty, shrewd, sensible using of knowledge to get their own ends that the serpent has. Right? Nancy, it is a bait and switch. So what's crazy about this is that the experience that Adam and Eve have after the tree is they didn't encounter God, they encountered the serpent. Now, eternally bound to crafty human rationale regarding what is right and wrong, good and evil. So this is definitely a bait and switch. You know, you'll be like God. They eat it and they become like the serpent. Crafty, a seducer. A, a person proud in their own knowledge, proud in using it to their own advantage, okay? And if that doesn't describe humanity, man, I don't know what does, you know, that we are, that we are so proud of our knowledge, so proud of all of our learning, so proud using all of that to create and manipulate and control, right? This is, this is what is so staggeringly brilliant and unveiling about these Genesis stories is that it accurately, I believe, gets right to the heart of what is wrong, not just in politics, you know, not just in America. This is what's wrong at the core of the human experience, the core of the human heart, okay? And our systems are built upon a bunch of humans that have hearts like this, Right, and we've heard, we've heard throughout the years, if you've been raised in a Christian home, that, that sin, um, maybe you've heard that sin is missing the mark, um, that when we sinned, we, we, got, we got our eternal divine nature taken away from us, and we got given a, a temporal nature, that we, we had this beautiful, infinite connection to God, and it got taken away from us because we did what God didn't, what, what God told us not to do, right? You did the thing, and God asked him, did you do the one thing I said not to do? You know, it's like, I gave you all these things and I said one thing, one thing. Did you do that? Well, sin isn't just about like making God angry because you did the one thing that he told you not to do, you know, and that Jesus had to come and substitutionally atone and pay for the sin. All of this stuff the penal substitution and the substitutional atonement theories, and these are all accurate explanations from the Scripture about the work of Jesus, right? But one of them by themselves doesn't come close to describing the depth of what's really going on in humanity. And I don't know how long it's going to take me to get there, but the reason I, I talk about all of this stuff is so that we can finally understand the work of Jesus. Because if we don't know what he comes to save us from, we don't understand his point. Okay? He saves us from something to something. Okay? And the two we've gotten wrong, heaven on a cloud somewhere up there, and the from, the sin making God angry by doing what he said not to do. Both of those things are severe reductions of what's really happening. So what's really happening? Well, we encounter and become people that hold knowledge of right and wrong, good and evil. 
We become the ones without reference to God that have all of our human rationale and all of our wisdom, and we become people that use it as a weapon, that use it to disconnect ourselves from the eternal one and reconnect ourselves to our own ideas. We use all of this stuff to become gods ourselves. This is what's really going on in the garden that articulates all of this. So... I don't know. I don't want to keep ranting about that, but it seems so clear in my head, y'all. I mean, if you just if you look at the the great challenges that are facing our nation, um, maybe I'm just you know a simplistic, you know, brainwashed Bible believing conservative guy. That's possible. Most brainwashed people don't ever consider the fact that they're brainwashed, um, but. You know, whatever. Everybody's brainwashed. The problem is, who's doing the washing? That's the question. You know, we're all having our minds renewed. You know, we ought to anyway. Somebody's doing a wash job on us. But if you look at all the problems in the world today, I just, I really believe that if people stopped all of their human wisdom and rationale and everything and connected their hearts to Jesus and asked him what he was doing in it, we would start getting a whole heck of a lot of answers. And we would start alleviating suffering and coming up with inventions and new ways of doing and moving in the earth because we'd have new God ideas. And those God ideas wouldn't be Women have to cover their hair in public and they're not permitted to speak. It wouldn't be regressive, you know, conservative, political, Victorian era values. It would be actual solutions to problems that the earth is facing that transform human experience. But we don't do that. Why don't we do that? Well, because we are all bound with this sin that has entangled us from the beginning, that we think we know better, that we have the knowledge. How foolish does it sound that you would stop and even think that you could talk to God and that God would talk back and that God cares about politics or government or the economy or the COVID virus or the vaccinations? Like, how foolish to think that there's another source of information besides your own human wisdom and reasoning and what the parties tell you. How foolish are you, Christian weirdo? Like, man, that's just 4,000-year-old lies from the enemy, you know? And this is why in the scriptures it says that God takes the foolish things of this world and confounds them. You know, the wisdom of God is so much wiser. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of this world, you know? And it's about this thing at the tree, that we eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we continue to gorge ourselves at our religious pharisaical tables and think that we are the theological purveyors of everything that needs to be done in the world, the Christians are some of the worst out there, right? We do this way, way worse than a lot of the secular people that I know that are more open. This is what my Hugging Hippies story, the Bleep and Jesus story I told a few weeks ago is about. You know, but... You know, there's a lot of Christians that don't do that, and there's a lot of quote-unquote secular people that are just pounding us with this. You have to know the right thing and educate yourself. 
You know, get woke, read the right books, learn the right language. Otherwise, you should feel ashamed of yourself because you're a white male at the top of the hierarchy and you should feel ashamed of yourself. Hey, I have all this shame and you should have my shame because you should carry my shame because you are uneducated. You don't have the right knowledge. Here, have this pomegranate. So, you know, when I say it's the devil, I'm not just saying it's the devil, it's all of this, but it is the devil. It's not not the devil. So, this was Adam and Eve's experience of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All right? So, now, we can't go back from that. You can't unsee that, you know? There's some things you just can't unsee. You can't unlearn it. So, this is what Adam and Eve begin to do. Okay? The eyes were both open. They knew they were naked. And so here's our solution. This is the first great act for someone whose eye has been opened up to know right and wrong, good and evil, and they're encountering now the world through the eyes and the lens of the serpent, not God themselves. So they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. All right, well, that's, you know, not a very exciting scripture, but this is the point. Y'all, the moment that we disconnect from God, everything becomes about us. It becomes about what we can do to solve our problems, what we can do to fix the problem, what we can do to cover our shame, to cover our nakedness, to fix the national debt, to reelect other people. What can we do? You know, so they're sewing things together and they're making for themselves loincloths. Okay, they're trying to fix the problem. They realize, oh my gosh, I'm naked. I'm ashamed. I'm out of relationship. You know, and what am I going to do now? Uh, I got this. I'll fix it. I do myself. My five-year-old say to my say to me, I do myself. Actually, that's more of a two-year-old phrase. So they make themselves loincloths. You know, and y'all, how many times? How many times have you guys um, tried to do something all on your own? I know you guys are probably holier than me. Um, But you've tried to do something on your own using your own human reasoning, make a decision or go get a job or do something in your job. And you're like, you can kind of feel, you kind of feel that maybe you're off, but you just kind of charge ahead, right? You do it all on your own. And then you have this encounter of just being naked. You end up lacking everything, being exposed, you're, you're vulnerable, it fails miserably, you lack everything, and then you're just like laid waste in your human reasoning and things just didn't go well. You know? And then what do you do? Well, you double down and try and fix the problem that you made by trying to fix the problem that you made by trying to solve a problem without God, right? And you just, this is a cycle and it comes into this just spiral down out of control of I created a problem, I can fix the problem that makes another problem that I can fix, but I cause another problem. It's like every slapstick comedy thing from the 50s, you know? So that's what happens here. They sew fig leaves together, they make themselves loincloths, they try and solve the problem they created, again, without reference to God. All right? Now, I'm not going to get there tonight. I'm just going to throw this passing comment in. Do they get a covering that they didn't make for themselves ever? 
Yeah, they do. They make for themselves. There's a problem here, and they're trying to fix it. They sewed things together. They get a loincloth later on, but it's God. And he, and he kills an animal, the first sacrifice, to cover their mistake. Okay? That's the first sacrifice in the scripture. God kills an animal and uses that to cover their nakedness, their awareness. So God gives them something. Uh, we're not going to get into all that tonight. Tonight's just the depressing part. Um, so let's move on. Verse 7. Um, they sew themselves loincloths. Verse 8, Genesis chapter 3. And then they heard this, oh, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And we're going to unpack all of these things. Everything that's underlined here, I want to talk to you about these words because this passage is so beautiful. I love this passage. Um, but right like this, it's like, me. So, you know, it's a little, well, okay. It's a lot like the Mandalorian. It's like, meh. Um, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, in the cool of the day. Okay, so I'm going to change this out for some the Hebrew words and show you these words, and then I'm going to articulate it all and give you, um, give you some additional meaning. So here's the Hebrew transliteration, okay? And verse 8, And they shamad the chol, of Yahweh Elohim halach in the gan ruach of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the panaim of Yahweh Elohim among the trees of the gan. Okay, so there's a couple things that stick out here. Um, right here is one of them. The cool of the day is ruach, and this, Panaim, and the Yahweh Elohim. I had talked about this before. Um, and I've shared, I got this from one of my friends in Israel. He told this to me. Um, I'll never forget where we were walking outside the old city over to the spot where they keep the, sh- the Shroud of Turin, and he was laying all this stuff out for me. Oh, yeah, and then there's Shema. Thanks, Melody. But, you know, he said, Yahweh, if you put the four characters together, the Yad, He, Vav, He, and it, it means the God, the one who is embodied, um, or the eternal uh, uh, unveiled one. Um, and this is why a lot of the, the Orthodox Jewish people don't say the name of God. They put the word Adonai in the place of Yahweh, um, the Yod, He, Vav, He. Um, but... Elohim means the gods. Well, I'm doing the next slide here. So let's do this. Let's get um, let's get all of these slide, all these words together, and let's look at them. Okay. So the word Shema. Who? Well, I've, this is why I ask in groups. You can't really raise your hand. Um, Shema. Uh, this is a big one. You know, and uh, this is the one that means hear, listen, and obey. You know, it's three parts to that. It's hear, listen, and obey. And the Shema is one of the most important um, Jewish prayers, declarations, is more of a declaration from anything. 
you know, and there are so many stories of Jews being murdered. Um, and the last thing they do is yell Shema. You know, it's the Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. And the other half of it, Ve'achafta, I am not quite, I don't remember it. But it's this Hebrew phrase from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, and it's, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, or the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And we add to the Shema and love your neighbor as yourself, because that's what Jesus added to the Shema in the New Testament, which was the mind meld for the people he was talking to. He's like, what? You added something out of Leviticus to the Shema in Deuteronomy? Um, that, was, that was the moment. But Shema is just a massive word. Okay, and it's a concept and a prayer and a declaration to hear, listen, and obey what God is doing. Okay, the word chol, chol is the word voice. Okay, and this is, it's used a lot, uh, but this is one of my favorite moments is in Exodus 19, 19. And they hear the Lord God thundering from the top of Mount Sinai. And he speaks out of the thick cloud, and it says, the people heard the thunder. The word thunder is chol, okay? And it's the thundering voice that, that, that reverberates throughout creation of the Almighty God, okay? It's, it's not a, you know, it's used in a lot of other ways. But this is the voice, the thundering voice of, of Yahweh, the one who is embodied, okay? Which brings us to Yahweh. Um, the one who is embodied, okay? The Yod He Vahe. All right? So, Elohim, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. We'll just recap. Elohim just means gods or rulers or judges, divine ones. It's singular and it's plural. Um, Elohim is not the name of a god, like when we say God as a Western person. We're, we're referencing the Judeo-Christian God, but the word Elohim, God, doesn't reference a particular entity. That's why this scripture says Yahweh Elohim, the God, you know, the one who is embodied, okay? Yahweh Elohim is, the, Yahweh is the name of a God, Elohim is a name for gods, all right? So Yahweh Elohim. It's like saying the president of the United States, you know, Donald Trump. So, halak, just going to leave that one there. Halak is a word that means to go, to walk, or to come. This, again, if you're a Jewish person, these are major concepts because the whole idea of, of and we've sort of appropriated these, these things into Christianity, um, if you're a good sort of if you're a good Christian and you go to Bible camps, then, you know, people ask you, well, how's your walk, brother? How's your walk doing, sister? Um, well, it, it comes from this Hebrew idea that the walk, you know, Jeremiah 6, about finding the ancient paths, which way to walk in. It's find the things that God has said. What are the ancient truths, the olam, the eternal truths that God has communicated? Find those things and then walk along them. Chalak. So for Jewish people, um, the chalak is about following Torah, about following the mitzvot. 
about doing the particular things that you're supposed to do as a good and faithful believer. Um, and, you know, as a Christian, I have a sort of a different perspective on what those things are, uh, but the same concept here. So this is, this is an idea of, yeah, yeah, you're walking, but this is a deeply embedded thing about connecting to the voice of God to follow the pathway of God, okay? It's not just a random, you know, verb. He was moving through the forest, little bunny foo-foo hopping through the forest, picking up the demon serpents and bopping them on the head. Um, the next one is gone. Gone's a, gone's a great word. It means garden. Um, you can impress your friends by saying, oh, Hebrew for garden is gone, um, if you have nerdy friends. But um, gone is, I mean, it's an interesting word, uh, but it also means enclosure, okay? And the idea of a gone is that it's not just this big open field. A garden is not a field. It is a condensed area that has a what? A fence, right? Peter Rabbit. You know, the new movie came out. My kids went and saw that. Peter Rabbit 2, I guess. You know, they have a garden. It's a gone. What makes it a gone? Well, there's plants and there's food that gets grown. But more than that, there's a fence, okay? It's an enclosed garden. And that's key, to understanding the gone. The gone is about a wall, a fence that's built around Torah. It's not a, just an open, expansive, you know, hilltop, gone with the wind, Strasbourg kind of like expanse. It's an enclosed, manicured, well-tended to place of life. Okay? But there's a boundary to it. Okay? And that's a key. There's a boundary. All right? The next word, ruach, you guys know this, probably. The Ruach HaKadesh is the Holy Spirit. The Ruach means wind or breath or spirit. This is the word that's used in Genesis 1, verse 2. And the Ruach of God was hovering over the face of the deep. Okay? So this word, wind, breath, spirit, is present here in Genesis 3. And the last one here is panaim, or panim. And this means face, okay? It is in the, the Haga Nagila. I think that's how you say it, the Jewish um, national anthem. This is one of, the, one of the words that's prominent in that song. And it's about, you know, I could do, I'm doing the finger thing, but you can't see me. Um, but this is, this is the dance. This is the face-to-face joyful dance. This is face presence, panaim or panim. Um, I'm not a Hebrew speaker. I just spent hours listening to the guy in Blue Letter Bible so I get my pronunciation right. Um, you don't want to put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable because then it sounds weird. Uh, <laughs> so let's take these and let's put them into our, um, we'll go back here into our um, verse here. And the Shema, you can read it there. The Shema, and they Shema'd the whole of the Yahweh Elohim Chalak in the Gan Ruach of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the Panaim of Yahweh Elohim among the trees of the Khan. So they didn't get out of the enclosed boundary. So let's take this and let's, um, let's put the expanded meaning in here for us. 
And they heard, listened, and obeyed the voice of the one God who is embodied, who was walking or teaching them in an enclosed lush space in the spirit during the day or of the day. So they heard the spirit of God. Okay, He was in the boundaries of the garden, and it was in the spirit that they heard these things, in the spirit of the day or during the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the face-to-face encounter with the one true God who is embodied amongst the boundaries that had enclosed this lush space. Okay, this this is a much deeper moment here than... You know, oh, God's coming, quick, hide, cops are here, everybody in the bushes, you know, toss your, toss your piece in the trash and let's go. No, like, this is the walk that they had with God. They, 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 the, they had this halach with God. They were shemaim, hearing, listening, and obeying the voice, the thundering presence of God, the one who was walking with them, the one that was embodied, and they were living inside of the perfect boundaries with God by the Spirit. They were empowered, and they were living in that. And their experience that they had before they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it happens again. So this first half of Genesis 3.8 is the experience that Adam and Eve were having as they just lived in the garden. But the second half is their response. Does that make sense? This is how I read this and interpret. They had this experience of hearing Shemaim, the voice of God, but now that they understand, they're carrying the serpent's shame. They have become wise unto themselves the purveyors of knowledge and good and evil, and now they're in a heap load of trouble. And when they hear all of this, what do they do? They run from the presence of God. Okay? And this is, this is the human response to sin and God's pursuit, to run, to flee, to hide. Okay? And I heard a pastor say years ago, and I believe it's right, it's true, it's life-giving, that we shouldn't fear sin, but we should definitely fear the dark places in which sin hides. Because if you're hiding, there's no light. Okay? It's not about how much darkness you have, it's about whether or not you're willing to come into the light. So, this is God's response, Genesis 3, um, 9 through 11. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Do you think that God knew where they were? You know, like any, any parent knows. It's like, peekaboo, oh, where'd you go? Where'd daddy go? Or where's Gabriella? I see you with that stupid little fig leaf thing. You know, it's not covering everything. I can see you, right? Of course, God knows what's going on here. But he still asked the question. We're going to come back to that. So he said, where are you? And Adam, he replies, at least he's honest here, you know? At least, yeah. I heard the sound of you in the garden, he said, and I was afraid because... I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, 
Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Okay, and so, so these are the consequences now of what happens when they run and they hide. Um, but first, I think it's important to note that there's one, re- there's one way to read this as an angry, vengeful God who is upset that you've transgressed one of his laws and he's coming now to drop the hammer and, you know, punish you. But the fact that God cried out, where are you? This is a very fathering moment. This is a fathering statement, right? What is he doing? He's chasing his kids down, right? He's trying to let them be discovered. The delight of my children when they play hide-and-seek in the house with me, which we don't do a whole lot, but we used to, the delight of the children was not about hiding, it was about being found, right? It was about being discovered. And the experience then of having something sneaky, but then you get found, you get discovered. And so the father is going in this, I think it's an ache that opens up in the heart of dad that says, oh my gosh, where have you, why have you disconnected from me? And I'm going to call out to you now, not because I don't know where you are, but because I'm inviting you back. Where are you? Come back to me. What have you done? Did you do the one thing I told you not to do? I already know that you did it. You know, just come back and tell me. Come back to me. You know, and um, come back to me. Where are you? Okay, it's a pursuit. Okay, And then he asked this very good question, who told you you were naked? And we'll talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. But but I read this in the context of the encounter with the father. This is a fathering moment. This is the father speaking to the kids that have rejected and rebelled, and he's coming to call them home. Okay? So these are the consequences here of losing a fathering influence in our lives, which is a big part about what happens in the garden is that we become the power source for right and wrong, good and evil, the knowledge, the weight of that comes upon our shoulders, and we lose lose our fathering connection. And when we lose a fathering connection, we lose a fathering influence. Okay? So this is also one of those things, I mean, it's pretty standard here, but it's important, um, that we understand in our culture that we're in the mess that we're in today, uh, in large part, not because of the tyrannical white male structure, um, but because there are no dads in the homes in a lot of places. And if you actually look at real data to diagnose and solve a problem, you can see that trend line after the 60s when things were incentivized to keep the family unit to begin to divide and fracture out the family unit. This is why organizations like Black Lives Matter had on their website before they got really popular the fact that they were opposed to and working to deconstruct the nuclear family. And in all of their stuff about family, they don't talk about fathers once. You can read this on the archive.org um, site. Uh, why would Black Lives Matter be opposed to the nuclear family? Well, because there's fathers in the house. And if you lose a fathering influence in the house, you lose these following things. 
And if you lose these following things, you are much more easily manipulated and brought into the the satanic belief that you are the power structure, you are the knowledge of good and evil, you need to supplant this old archaic God system with your own knowledge and ability. And oh, are you too dumb to know what that is? That's fine. Read a few of our books and just do what we do. This is the first thing that we lose when we lose a fathering influence in our lives. We lose opportunities to understand our identity. Okay? And just because you don't have a father in the house doesn't mean you don't have an identity, okay? Um, you can get lots of identities from lots of places. Your heavenly father can come and do this. These are, these are generalizations about what fathers do um, throughout history and time, and it's important that we take a look at it. So if you lose identity, you often then just get rooted in your sense of shame, your sense of nakedness, this exposure. Like you don't, if you don't know who you are, you don't know that you're good. If you don't know that you're good, you believe that you're bad. And if you live your life believing that you're bad, all of your actions and reactions and responses will be triggered by shame. Some of that will be your shame. Some of that will be carried toxic shame from people that prey on you and manipulate you. If you don't know who you are, you don't have a boundary around life and death, right and wrong good and evil. If you don't have an identity there and you don't have God at the center of who you are, we get incredibly bound up in shame. Incredibly, you know, and I'm speaking from experience. And you become very self-aware, okay? This is Adam and Eve. Everything becomes about themselves, right? It's, a, it's the idea of self, and the idea of self becomes the focus of everything, almost like it becomes your lived experience, you know? And your, your um, lived experience is, is code word for the CRT world. Uh, and lived experience trumps all of your reason and data and sciencey stuff. Because it doesn't matter if you're factually proving anything, my lived experience is this, and that trumps everything else. It's all about self, okay? When you become self-aware because you're struggling because you don't have an identity because you've lost a fathering influence in your life. and You're not getting this. Everything becomes about self, okay? The other part of this that Adam and Eve begin to live out of is you lose a sense of protection. You know, fathers provide not just money. They do provide money. Um, although the first year that I was married, my wife made all the money and I just stayed home and read the Bible. Um, the Lord knew I needed a sugar mama. Got me one. But that's all changed, you know? <laughs> that was for a season. Um, but it's not about these gender normative roles um, to put people in the like, men do this and women do this. But God made men and women different. It seems ludicrous that that is challenged in our country. Um, but they're different, and men provide protection, physically larger. You know, our culture is set up in a particular way so that it's been easier for men to make and produce wealth over the, the years, although a lot of that's changing, which I think is good. Um, you know, wage equality between men and women, it's important um, that we make strides, and we've made quite a few strides, actually, about all that. But the idea of protection, um, when, when Adam and Eve lost the fathering influence, what did they do 
when God came to speak to them? Well, they self-protected. They lost the fathering protection, and they self-protected. How, how did that happen? Well, they ran. Fight or flight. Flee the presence. Flee the presence. You know, and I'm seeing some comments on Facebook, and I mean, I know many of you didn't have fathers, and it causes devastation. You know, this is the end of Malachi, the last words in the, in the Old Testament, you know, I'm going to send to you the spirit of Elijah that will turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the hearts of the sons back to the father, lest I strike the earth with a decree of utter desolation. Fatherlessness is a decree of utter desolation. J. Edgar Hoover famously said, I never met a man in prison who went fishing with his dad. You don't have a father in your life to teach you things. It causes serious problems. Not to say it is a sentence of criminal life, okay? That is not the point. But when you lose the protecting influence, you flee the presence of God. Adam and Eve did it. We don't have our protection. We don't feel safe. We don't feel secure. So we got to create safe spaces out in the world where we don't have a father that takes care of us. So we need a safe space and we need pins to identify what the safe space is. And all the microaggressions begin to harass us. And, you know, our lived experience is that you're offending and attacking me with your violent speech because I, I'm getting attacked by your microaggressions. I don't have safe. Well, what is that about? That's a fatherless response to feeling assaulted. Now, words are violence. You know, you can use words as violence, okay? But, but it's a much worse situation when we compel speech or prevent speech than allowing free speech and dealing with the violent ones when they come. Because there is violent speech, and it does have consequences. Um, but they flee the presence, and then... There gets this, when you run, you know, you begin to entrench yourself in this irrational idea that you can hide from God, or better, worse yet, that you can hide from the Father when a Father comes back to you. You think, yeah, my running actually is protecting, you know, and in some cases you do need to run, but ultimately this is what you begin to believe. You, the loss of a fathering influence in your home, in the natural, that's a healthy, godly fathering influence. You lose an identity. You become hyper self-aware, very ashamed. You begin to flee relationships and connection because you have to self-protect because you don't ever know when you're safe and when you're in danger. And then you begin to cultivate this irrational belief that you can't actually hide from God. And this perpetuates how hard it perpetuates this disconnection with God. And I had to work for many years to connect to God the Father on purpose to go after the Father wound because I believed I could hide, and you can't, and it's much better. So the next thing here about what fathers do is that they, they are providers. And this is not just money, okay? Um, it's, it's help. It's education, it's teaching, you know. Mothers can do all this stuff too, um, but there's a unique um, instruction-providing part of the father's uh, presence in a family. And Adam and Eve lost provision, and so what'd they do? They're like, well, I can fix it. I got it. 
one of, one of my favorite Seinfeld bits is, you know, he's talking about, you know, why do all these people drive down the streets with the mattresses on top of their car and all they got is their hand on the roof and they're like, I got it, I got it, don't worry, I got it. It's funny when he does it, I don't have a very good Seinfeld impression. But I got it, you know, I'm driving 60 miles an hour with a 80-pound mattress on my roof and I'm just holding it down with my arm. I got it. Well, this was the idea. When you don't have a father that helps you understand that you're provided for, you think that you can fix all the problems that you created. And so the worst part about this is that Adam and Eve don't seem to reconnect at the father's pursuit. Okay? And we're going to do this last thing here, and then we'll be done and ask some questions, answer some questions. So they don't seem to reconnect at the Father's pursuit. And this is why. Let's go to Genesis 3.12. So God said, um, actually this is in Genesis. So God says to them, you know, have you done the one thing? Where are you? What's going on? And Adam is like, um, you know, I was naked and ashamed. And God says, well, did you do the one thing I said not to do? And this is Adam's response. Okay. He says, the man said, Genesis 3.12, the woman whom you gave to be with me, makes a big point of that. I'm pretty sure there was sarcastic tone in that. Your woman that you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Okay, I just want to finish out here um, with something that I call the, uh, the cycle of blame here in Genesis, you know, and um, it's a pretty regular experience, but this is kind of what happens here, and then we'll be done for the evening. So the cycle of blame, it starts here. I'm going to go full screen here so you all can see this. That word is sin. Uh, this is a little small. Cycle of blame, sin, you know, it starts here. We do something that misses the mark, right? We do something that God told us not to do, and it's not about making him angry. It's about not living in the glory that he made us for, okay? So it starts with the action of sin. But the next thing that happens immediately here in Genesis is God's relentless pursuit, okay? That's the next thing, all right? They ate from the tree. They were naked they covered themselves, and they heard God in the Spirit, the one who is embodied, walking in the Spirit and calling out to them, where are you? This is God's relentless pursuit, okay? And maybe you didn't expect to see that in the cycle of blame, but this is what happens because every blame cycle includes the pursuit of God from sin because he pursues with an overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love, a pursuit from the moment of the disconnection in the garden. He was after his kids, okay? He wasn't sitting there like I do. Well, shouldn't have made that mistake. Hmm. Told you not to, you know, told you to take out the dog, and now you stepped in their poop inside. That was your fault. No, he's pursuing them immediately, okay? The next thing that happens here is that Adam... And Eve, they have fear and shame, and they run and hide. 
Okay, so there's a sin activity, a missing of the mark. God comes to pursue you, to pursue me, and the thing that we're afraid of stimulates and we're ashamed and we're afraid and we try to solve the problem ourselves by running from God's pursuit. This is the beginning of blame, okay? And the rest of this cycle can stop right here if you cut out number three, right? I don't know... We could have a long discussion about whether you could cut out sin altogether, like never sin again. I mean, 1 John says you could never sin, right? I don't know we can get rid of sin, the experience of sinning, missing God's mark. We're never going to get rid of God's relentless pursuit. But y'all, we can stop the cycle of blame if we won't run and hide. Okay? This can stop. But it doesn't for Adam and Eve, and I think this is why this story articulates the human condition. So after the fear and shame and hiding, God then comes back into the story, and he, and he says, who told you you were naked? He doesn't say, check your privilege. He says, check your hearing. Who's telling you? that you should be ashamed that you're white? Who's telling you that you're naked? Who's telling you that you're not beautiful, that you're no good, that you'll always be this way? Who's telling you that the sexual trauma of your life is going to define you the rest of your life and no one's going to love you? Who's telling you this? Because it's not me. need to ask this question. These are moments, if we don't run and hide in shame, we can stop this. But even if we do, God says, all right, who's talking to you right now? You're hearing my voice. We're having this dialogue. But who told you these things that you're believing, that you're running and hiding from? Who says that? God wants, to, God wants you and me to examine the voice. Okay? Don't forget to do that. Who told you these things? Who are you listening to? Who's washing your brain right now? Okay? The next thing that happens, though, if you don't really respond to that, the man blames his relationship on God. Okay? And this is, I don't know, it's kind of a male thing to do. It's like, I didn't even want this stupid relationship in the first place. You're the one that gave it to me, you know? I was just trying to, you know, have a family and be good, and now I got this woman that's with me. You gave her to me. And I think that, you know, the when relationships go wrong, I don't know. It's blame. First, it's God's fault for the relationship, and then the next thing that happens is man then blames the problem on the relationship, right? This is... This is good logic right here. I appreciate this, you know? You don't just blame God for your problem. You blame God for your relationship, and then you blame the relationship for your problem. So you're not saying, God, you did this to me, but it, you know, it's the same thing, right? God, you gave me this relationship, and the relationship is my problem. And so, God, it's your problem that I have a problem, right? So men use logic and reason rooted in relationship to pass the blame on to other things. Okay, and then the last thing that happens here is that the woman blames the problem on the serpent. Okay? 
So once we get once we get past God's relentless pursuit, but we run and hide, and he tells us to examine the voice, and we don't examine the voice, this is when we move into this very rapid cycle of disconnecting from God, reconnecting to our own ideas, and blaming everything on the other. This is called othering. You know, this is the other person's problem, the other person's fault. You blame God, you blame the woman, the woman blames the serpent. And the serpent does a little serpent dance because he got exactly what he wanted, which was a cycle that leads to sin. And now you're back in it, okay? But nowhere along the path of this cycle of blame that leads to sin, it starts with sin and it leads to sin. You know, it's like one of my favorite lines from The Simpsons when Homer Simpson says, Alcohol, the cause of and the solution to all of life's problems. Sin, the cause of and the result of sin. What causes blame? Sin. What results from blame? Sin. The cycle continues on. You know. And I think that it's significant that if we look along the way, um, I'm going to do a little redemption time here, and then I'll pray and we'll answer some questions. These are the things that are going on in our culture and in our hearts. And they're going on in our culture because they're going on in our hearts. If they weren't going on in our hearts, they wouldn't be happening in culture. I completely reject the lie that culture is racist and you don't need individual racists to have a racist culture. Okay, The problem with racism is the human heart issue. It's not a systemic cultural issue. You're not going to solve a cultural problem when it's a heart problem. But you don't want to talk about individual heart problems if you're a neo-Marxist because you're not trying to reform anybody. You're trying to overthrow something, and nobody wants to hear the story that you want to overthrow all the people. They'll buy into the fact that you need to overthrow the government, but not the people. I'm ranting a lot about that stuff tonight. I'm just reading a ton, and it's a real threat. So... So, but there is a spot along the way that we need to stop our hiding and stop our fear and stop our running, you know? And I want to encourage you all in this time and in this season when so much is, is well, the way that it is. Um, you know, I've, I've had an increased opportunity for sin in the last few months, you know? And I'm traveling a bit more now and the world is out of my little bubble is it's just a huge increase of opportunity for me to be a jerk, for me to have my own attitude and ideas about what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with the businesses that still require me to wear a face mask and what's wrong with the people that vaccine shame me on the tee box at my golf club. And like, it's an opportunity for me to sin a lot more these days and miss the glory that God made me for, you know, and, and I, I'm finding comfort in learning and remembering, reminding myself here that in the middle of the opportunities for sin, God is pursuing me, okay? And if you remember the relentless pursuit of God, maybe you can stop this cycle right here. Maybe you can decide, I'm not going to hide. I'm going to deal with this. And when God comes and pursues, then he comes and he deals with this particular issue. He looks at your sin. He exposes your sin. He shines the light 
of the Spirit on your sin, you know, and then it all gets washed away, right? We don't have to continue down this cycle of blame. Y'all, and I, I just really believe that so much that's going wrong in our culture today that's causing so much damage and pain, if we would stop blaming other people and blaming other things, we could end this. But that requires that you yield to God's relentless pursuit. You stop running. You stop hiding. Even if you can't do that, examine the voice that's speaking to you. And if you can learn to hear the voice of what's speaking to you and not listen to it, I don't know how to get all that stuff, sorry. If you, you can stop this cycle right down here, and you don't have to go into this other cycle of blaming the problems that leads you. Once you get started on this left half of this cycle, you know, you're going to end back up top pretty quickly, okay? But you can stop along the way. Work on not hiding and running in fear from God and your problems. And if you can't do that, Listen to the voice of God and learn how to examine the things that you're hearing. And when you learn to examine the things you're hearing, you're probably going to learn in a lot of these areas that the voice that you're listening to is not the Holy One. And when you discover that it's not the Holy One, then you got a choice to make about whether you're going to continue to entertain those thoughts or whether you're going to do what the Scriptures say and take them captive punish them, make them obedient to Christ. We don't punish ourselves, we punish the thoughts, the demonic thoughts. Those aren't your thoughts. Those are enemy thoughts, okay? The enemy is a liar. He is a stealer. He is a thief. He's been lying from the beginning. He's the father of lies, Jesus says. And if you're believing a lie, it came from that father, not the one that gives you identity, protection, and provision, but the one that tricked us into believing that we would be like God if we could become smarter with more knowledge, okay? So I hope this is in some capacity a little bit of a practical kind of thing. Just look, start by examining the voice. And when you get pretty good at that, to discern in the battlefield of the mind, discern the spirits, then stop running. And then... Imagine this. What if you just had a sin and then an experience of God's relentless pursuit? What if that was your sin experience? I sin, and then I experience God's relentless pursuit. I think you'd probably stop sinning so much because you'd start getting overwhelmed with the relentless love of Jesus, you know? And there'd be a whole lot less sinning going on, which I think would be wonderful. Not so that it would prove my Christian religion right, but so that it would transform the human experience where we could love one another and be loved by God and actually receive love and not just demand it because we're too scared to do the hard work of becoming like God by being connected with God. Pray with me. King Jesus, we know that you are alive, that you are life yourself, Father, and that there are so many things that we don't have a chance to combat, prevent, protect ourselves from if we're not with you and in you. 
Father, so I ask in Jesus' name that you would descend on everyone that's listening to this. We ask for a fathering, comforting presence of the Ruach HaKadosh, Father, that would blow through the hearts and the minds of people right now. Jesus, you said you will not leave us as orphans without the comfort of a father, but you will send your spirit to us. So I ask, Jesus, that you would send the comforting spirit to me, to everyone that's listening to this right now, that you would comfort them with the tangible daily presence of your spirit. Father, that you would impart to us, Father, a new measure in this season when we're all getting untangled from our weak yeses that have bound us up in things that aren't the new thing or the full thing. Father, as we're getting untangled and we're discovering that we have a whole new place in your heart, Father, impart a new measure of identity, Jesus, to us, Father, so that we could become more of who you've made us to be in the world. Father, we declare and receive the protecting presence of the Holy One of Israel. Father, we invoke the Resurrection Act over our nation to protect our nation with the resurrection power of Jesus. Father, in all the things that are coming here this summer, and the things that are building, and the tensions, God, that are roiling in the earth, Father, we pray, Jesus, for divine protection over the United States of America. Father, and I do love other nations, but I'm, I'm fighting for this one right now. Daddy, and so we declare, Jesus, that we live in a Psalm 91 protection, that we are hidden away under the presence of the Holy One of Israel. We are seated up with the Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the El Shaddai power God, the one who does mighty works, and the one who makes his promise and keeps his promise. That it's one thing to be a promise maker, but it's a very different thing to be a promise keeper. So we thank you, God, that you have given us protection. Father, I do also pray right now for provision for your children. There are so many dreams and visions that are in the hearts of your kids that are not being birthed. Father, so we ask, living God, that you would provide provision, Jesus, not just financial, but also financial, but that you would provide the emotional and the physical um, provision for people to be able to focus and accomplish what you put in their heart to do. Father, once we're rooted in your love, we can do anything we want to as long as we're being who you made us to be. Because you didn't tell us what to do, you told us what to be. We are children, sons and daughters, Father. So ignite our spirits right now in Jesus' name to do Anything that's in our hearts, Father, that's connected to your heart. Daddy, we can do anything we want to when our hearts are connected to you because we have your heart. So connect our hearts to you, Jesus, so that we don't Ishmael our way into this next phase of life, that we don't hold up our dead works that we created ourselves and say, oh, what about this, Jesus? Can I have this? And you say, no, the promise of God comes through the child of the promise that's made through the love relationship. So Father, root us in the love relationship so we can give birth to the child that you have called us to give birth to so that the promise of God that he has said will come to pass actually comes to pass. Father, we declare that the promises of God will no longer be aborted in our generation. Father, that the promises that you have spoken out right now to your people would no longer be aborted, the seed would not be cast in the field before its time, and that the life of God would grow up full and mature in our hearts. 
God, we ask you for these things, and we also serve notice to the spiritual powers and principalities that harass and contend against the purposes of God, that we know what you're doing. We have the living Jesus that is with us, and we are moving in concert with him, and we serve notice to the spiritual powers that are harassing our nation and harassing the minds of people to confuse them into believing things about their identity that's false. We declare in Jesus' name that your days are numbered, that your season of tyranny in our nation is coming to a close, and that your bride is awakening to her true authority to tear down demonic strongholds and connect people to God. So we believe you, God, for this. We declare this, Father, and we say it, and it may seem stupid and foolish right now, but God, we're like Elijah who sees a tiny cloud in the sky and says, here comes the rain. Father, here comes the destruction of the things the enemy has tried to use to destroy our nation. And we are a nation of deliverers who have a purpose and a destiny, and it will not be thwarted by any enemy plans. What God has started cannot now be stopped. We believe you for this, Jesus. We decree it. We live in it. Reform and remake our hearts so that we don't just have to try and believe. We live from belief because we live from you and with you. Father, we do believe these things, and we ask them and declare them in Jesus' mighty and holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, that was fun. All right, so now I'm going to turn on my fan. If you guys have any questions, um, I would love to love to answer them. So if you have a question, um, could we do this tonight? Um, I know you guys have been chatting, Chatty McChatterson in Zoom. If you guys could put your question in the chat inside of Zoom and I could read it and then I could ask you to unmute and ask it um, only because I don't have a whole bunch of time and um, I also don't want to get a question that's really sticky. <laughs> I'm supposed to just do it and not tell you what I'm doing. Dang it. Um, I'm not very a room, but if you have something that you'd like to ask inside of Facebook or in YouTube chat, I'm monitoring both of those. So if you've got a chat, um, a question, please, please ask it. Or if you just want to raise your hand in zoom, you don't want to type, just ask your question. I trust you. Um, I both want to pursue the word unafraid and I also don't want to be deplatformed. Um, but I can't be deplatformed, whatever I'll build. I'll build a new Facebook. It'll be God book. It'll be awesome. Oh, messages. Yes. Okay. Well, I don't see any questions. Maybe it's the, maybe it's the format. So, all right. Well, I appreciate you all. And that's not the right one. There we go. So next week, July 5th, Monday night, um, there is, I'm not going to do this on July 5th. Um, I did Memorial Day, but I'm not doing July 5th. So no study next week. Uh, We also don't have the World Prayer Network on Thursday or on Sunday, July 4th. Um, So come back on July 12th and I will continue on. Um, We're going to start looking next time around about the uh, what God's response is to the serpent 
that God curses the ground, curses the serpent, but God never cursed humanity. Okay? Never. Read your Bibles, people. Never cursed humanity. Okay? Speak something to humanity we need to deal with. But the curse is to the serpent and the curse is to the ground. Okay? So we're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about the tree of life. And then I'm probably going to get into how this begins to work its way out into the law and what the purpose then of the law is. Okay? So I'm going to get into Romans 5 and Galatians 4. I've sort of bypassed all of that stuff to lay a framework, but I'm going to address that next time, July 12th. Romans 4, uh, Romans 5, sin into the world through one man, and then also Galatians 4, um, our great pedagogue, the law. So if you guys want to get connected to me on um, social media, you can follow me on Facebook. You can go to my website, adamshindler.com, or on YouTube. Or you can text the word study to 770-746-8388 and you can get the Zoom meeting. Lastly, if you do text me and you want to text the word DTRW, death to right and wrong, DTRW, um, you'll get a, uh, a, a PDF link so that you can read the first chapter of a book that I'm probably never going to publish unless I quit my job and do things full time. Um, so I'm not sure that's going to happen, but maybe, maybe now that I've said it out loud. So God bless you all. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. And I will see you again on another day. Bye-bye. Thank you. God bless you. Happy fourth. Good night.